Good evening. So, Scott mentioned that maybe since everyone else had self-control to do different things today that I would as well. And I confirm that I am. I have 17 pages of notes that only is going to take an hour and a half tonight, so you'll be fine. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, we, uh, we was lo- I was looking the other day because I wanted to check and see. I think that those of you that are here tonight actually are here witnessing history. And you might be like, what do you mean witnessing history? Well, I went back and looked, and I started this series on the fruit of the Spirit back in December of 2019. You guys may be witnessing the longest time period ever to get through the fruit of the spirits by one sermon series. But I'm thankful for the times that I've had to be able to share and the fact that the Lord has allowed me to do that with you guys over the course of these last few years. And I will be finishing this evening. So we will be wrapping up uh, the fruit of the spirit this evening. But let's go ahead and as we start tonight, start in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to be here this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you and to be able to look into your word together and to be able to look at what it means for us to have self-control and what it means that you have the fruit of the Spirit in us. I thank you that over these past few years we've had the opportunity to be able to uh, go through each one of these one by one and to be able to just look a little more deeply at what it means to have the Spirit dwelling us in us and to cultivate these, this fruit that uh, he's sharing with us. And I just thank you now for the opportunity you have tonight to look at these one last time and to be able to share uh, from Galatians this time uh, this evening as well. I just thank you so much for what you've done and continue to do for us and just pray uh, that tonight would be just a blessed time for us all together. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we go tonight, why don't you flip over to Galatians chapter 5, as has been the case over the last several sermons that we've done going through the fruit of the Spirit. That's going to be our starting point. Uh, We will be moving around a little bit as we go throughout the evening, but we're going to start in Galatians chapter 5 because that's where it tells us what the fruit of the Spirit are. And in this section, Paul goes through and he tells us, what the works of the flesh are, and he gives us this list. And we get down to verse 22, and he says, After all of those things, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. As we wrap up our study tonight, we're going to be looking at this idea of self-control. We, as you think about the the term self-control, there are some, as I've studied, that would question whether self-control actually belongs in the list of the gift of the fruit of the Spirit. But they say this because they look at it in the first word there is self. And to them, that is a very introspective, very much a me idea. And my hope is that over the course of the message this evening, that not only will we see that self-control does belong in this list, 
but that it is actually very instrumental in allowing us to manifest the rest of the fruit of the Spirit and bear them in our lives. So I was looking uh, into this idea tonight. I found a a quote from Lewis Smedes, and he said this. He said, self-control is like the conductor of a symphony orchestra. Under the conductor's baton, the multitude of talented musicians play the right notes at the right time, at the right volume, so that everything sounds just right. If you think about the idea of self-control within our spiritual lives, doesn't it kind of do the same thing? It takes those wants, it takes those needs, it takes those desires, and as the Holy Spirit wields it, it brings them together in such a way that it's not our desires that we want. It's the Lord's desires that we want. And it allows us to come together in just the right way so that we can live a spirit-controlled life. Just like that baton of the orchestra conductor brings all of those things together, all of those instruments together in such a way to make a beautiful song, self-control is what helps bring together all the fruit of the Spirit for us to live a spirit-controlled life. And I'm very excited to just be able to share a little bit about that with you tonight. As we, as we start and we think about what self-control is, the first thing we're going to look at is, obviously, the explanation of self-control. And Proverbs 25, 28 says this. It says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. For us today, that doesn't necessarily mean as much as it would have to those back in the days that Proverbs was being written because we don't have walls around our cities. Our cities are open. I drive into Byron Center. There's no wall stopping me from getting in. But back in that day, back in the time of Proverbs, when this was being written, cities were constructed with very large walls because they were there to protect. They were there to protect the citizens. They were there to protect the city and the possessions of those that lived there. And as someone would have been writing these words, that's the picture that would have been in his mind, the fact that if those walls weren't there, that city would be vulnerable to any enemy that came along. And as we look at that idea, self-control is like that wall, but it's protecting our hearts and mind from the enemy. They're protecting, it's protecting us from giving in to those lusts, those desires that Satan would have us be that would keep us from living the life that God would have us live. So as we think of this imagery, as we think of this idea of this wall, of, of this protection of self-control, how do we find what this fruit is in our lives? Well, if we look at Merriam-Webster, it defines self-control as a restraint exercised over one's own impulses, emotions, or desires. The first definition that comes up when you Google the word says this. It says it's the ability to control oneself, in particular one's emotions and desires, or the expression of them in one's behavior, especially in difficult situations. The Greek word that's translated self-control in Galatians Galatians is enkratia, which is defined as a virtue of one who masters his desires and passions. King James Version uses the word temperance, which also means self-restraint or moderation. As you listen to these definitions, as you think about the root definition of this, the secular definitions and the biblical definitions sound a lot alike. It's this idea of having control over your emotions, having control over your desires, those things, moderation, restraint. The difference comes when we see how these definitions are applied. 
When we look at the idea of how the world would apply the idea of self-control would be that idea that it is all about me. If you, if you look at society today, society would tell us that we're in control of ourselves. We're the ones in control of our lives. We have ultimate control over what happens. We're the ones that do what we want to do. Whatever we want to be, that's what we're going to be. We rely only on ourselves to handle situations, whether those be good or bad. There's no reliance on anything but me. And if it's good for me, that's what matters. But as Christians, when we think of a biblical perspective of self-control, you see a very different view. As we just said in Galatians, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. That means that that's something that God gives to us. We realize that in and of ourselves, and maybe you're different than I, but it can be very easy to be influenced by the things around us, both good and bad. We can allow the things around us, the things of this world, to control us. And when we think about that idea, if we're not letting God control us, then all the things around us are controlling us. It kind of takes away the idea of self altogether. We look at this whole thing and realize that in and of ourselves, we don't have control. Our fleshly desires have control. But when we look at the idea of having self-control, we see that it truly comes from the Lord. I found this in the website gotquestions.com says this. It says, one of the proofs of God's working in our lives is the ability to control our own thoughts, words, and actions. I love that where it talks about the fact that's what proofs God's working in our life is that those things are able to be done, not the other way around. It's not that we're naturally weak-willed, but our fallen nature is under the influence of sin. One definition of sin is filling a legitimate need through illegitimate needs, means. In other words, you might have something that's not bad that you do, but if you do it in a way that God doesn't approve, that's sin. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we are incapable of knowing and choosing how best to meet our needs. Even if we know what would be best, such as maybe not something along the lines of not smoking, another need like comfort would take precedence and enslave us again. When we are saved by Christ's sacrifice, we are free. The liberty includes, among other things, freedom from sin. Romans 6, 6 says, Our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. See, when we become Christians, when we allow the Spirit to be what works in our lives, we're free from that bondage to sin. We're free to say no. We're free to have self-control in those situations that arrive. So as we look at these definitions, as we, as we truly start to realize what's there, we see that, like the other fruit of the Spirit, that we studied thus far, that self-control that's described in Galatians 5 can only be from the work of the Holy Spirit. True self-control is not something we can manifest. Paul said this in Romans seven eighteen. He said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, i.e. his sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul 
the great apostle that all of us look to as this amazing man that planted all these churches, had this amazing conversion, says, you know what, in and of myself, I can't do anything good. Even Paul says, I need the Spirit to help me. In our sinfulness, our self-control is limited. Yes, we can say no to things, but not to the extent God would have us do. To have the type of self-control God desires for us, for us to truly be free, we must have the fruit of the Spirit that's given to believers. So as we have that thought in our head, as we have that idea that self-control comes from the Spirit, I wanted to look into the Scriptures, one Old Testament person and one New Testament person that displayed self-control. So let's go to the Old Testament first. Go all the way back to the beginning to Genesis chapter 39. And as you're turning there, you may, may already know what I'm going to be talking about. Joseph was a man that had quite the journey in his life. From his brothers throwing him into a pit, from him being, from being, being thrown in prison, from him doing all these things. But we're going to be stopping in chapter 39 at a spot where Joseph is put into a situation where his self-control will be tested. Joseph has become the man in Potiphar's land. He is basically equal to Potiphar, and which we'll see as we read in this passage. He basically has as much control over everything in Potiphar's household as Potiphar does. That's how much control he's been given. But as we move into this section, we're going to start in verse 7 and read through verse 12. Listen to what happens. It says, And after a time, his master's wife, being Joseph's master's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Joseph had the run of the house. He was just, he was equal with Potiphar. He says so. The only thing Potiphar said was, don't touch my wife. And I love Joseph. Not only did he say that to Potiphar's wife when she did this to him, but he also said, how can you ask me to sin against God? By asking me to do this with you. And I, I read that and you might Think for a second, well, it was one time. That's easy to do. But it says that she did this day after day after day. Think about that in your life. If you have somebody every single day pounding on you to do something you know is wrong all the time, how hard that can get to be to keep your self-control. As you're just like, you know what, I'm done. One quick story, and I won't keep it long, but 
When I was younger and I worked in a factory back where my dad works, there was one summer where there were a group of guys and they decided that it was going to be their mission to get me to swear. That was what they wanted to do. They wanted me to just say one cuss word to them and they would leave me alone. And as I read this about Potiphar's wife day after day with Joseph, I think back to that because quite honestly, halfway through the summer, I was like, for a brief moment, the Lord will understand. He doesn't want me dealing with this day after day after day. But thankfully, he was the one that gave me the self-control and only by his grace was I able to not, not just let those guys have it. And the cool part about it was, is it opened a lot of neat conversations at the end of the summer when we were there because they were just like, I don't know how you did that. I said, neither do I. But I know one that does, and we were able to talk about that. But it, I just think about that, and I think about with Joseph, how much self-control he had to have. Because not only was it something that he knew he shouldn't do, but it was something that probably could have been a desire to have. And yet he said no and continued to say no day after day because he didn't want to sin against God. And he was able to do that. And if he was able to do that in that type of situation, the fact that we can do that too. If we trust the Lord to be the one to do in our lives to give us that self-control, we can do that. And as we move ahead, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Um, there, our New Testament person is the ultimate example of everything and one that we've used in each and every one of our, our studies because he is our ultimate example, and that's Jesus. And during his ministry, there were many places that he showed self-control. And we, we look at so many spots where, where he showed restraint and did what was right without sinning. But I think about him at the end of his time here on earth. As he was getting ready to go to the cross, and that's where we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be in the garden. They've had, they've had their meal, they've gone out, and Jesus is in the garden, and he tells his disciples that they, he wants them to pray with him. And we come to verse 39, and we see Jesus falling on his face and praying to the Father. And he says this, he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew the pain. He knew the agony. He knew that this was going to be something that was not easy. He knew that this was something that was going to cause great pain, not just physically, but spiritually. He knew what was ahead. And his comment is, Lord, Father, if there's any way, pass this cup for me. Thankfully for you and I, that's not where he stopped. Because Jesus could have stopped right there and said, you know what, I'm done. I have lived this life this way all this time, and I can't go any farther. The pain, the struggle that I've had already, I don't want to do it anymore. But look what he says. He second half of verse 39, he says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus could have stopped things. 
if you wanted to. But his statement was, Father, you know what, it's not about me. It's about you. And as we think about the idea of self-control, as we think about stopping our desires, that's the starting point for us to be able to do that, is for us to say, you know what, Father, it's your will, not mine. Because in and of myself, my will, in that moment, I want that. Even though I know it's probably not right, and I know that you have something better for me, that looks pretty good. But we say, no, Father, it's your will, not my will, not my wants, not my needs, not my desires, yours. That's where we need to be and what we need to do. And a little while after that, after Jesus is done praying, we come down a little farther and we get to verse 47. And it says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said, friend, do what you have come to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from other accounts that that was Peter striking off the ear of Malchus. And I think what is amazing is the way that Jesus responds to what Peter did. Peter was just trying to defend him. He was trying to stop them from taking him. And listen to what Jesus says in response to what Peter did. He says, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Even at that moment, if Jesus wanted to, he could have had the Father send 12 legions of angels. That is a lot of angels. (laughs) And take care of what was going on there. But he said, no. This is what I have to do. It's what I came to do. It's the plan the Father has. I'm not going to do that, and you're not going to do this either. And I think about that, and I think about Jesus, and I think about the way that he followed through with the plan. He did what the Father asked him to do. And for us, it's the same idea. We need to follow through with what the Father has asked us to do. And Jesus, throughout his life, was this great example of self-control, a perfect example, actually, of self-control. And even as we look at Joseph, we look at Jesus, we look at Paul, and we look at all of these men and the different women as well that were part of Scripture, we see through all of these examples that even in very tough situations, it is positive to have self-control. So what about us? What does our life look like? We, we live in a world that is full of pitfalls, right? Full of things that make it really easy to have our desires, to have everything that we want. But if we find self-control to be important, can we live it out? And that's how we're going to wrap up. And as, 
as I, as I get ready to, to talk about this. We're going to be in Titus. So if you want to flip over to Titus, I would encourage you to do that. And we're going to be looking at a letter that was written to a young pastor from his mentor. This young pastor was left in a place that was pretty much characterized by people who totally lacked self-control. In fact, where this young man was left was a place that was kind of the party center of the world at the time. Yet he was asked not only to plant churches, but to find elders to lead these churches. Paul was having him, on his own, train people to have self-control in a place where there was none. As we just said, we're going to be looking at the letter that Paul sent to Titus. And this place that Titus was, Island of Crete. And as we think about this idea, we think about Paul leaving him. He says in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What a noble task. And here's, what, here's the qualifications that Paul gives him. He says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so as he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You look at what, the, what Paul is looking for, it's a pretty tall order in West Michigan where we have a lot of people that are very godly, wonderful people. Look at me start from verse 10 to 12 at what Timothy had to work, or Titus had to work with. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, this is their own person talking, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This is what Titus had to work with to come up with that list from verses 6 to 9. That's going to be pretty tough. You're talking about a place that completely lacked self-control. Their own person, their own prophet, said that they were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. There is very little self-control in that description. And as I thought about that and I looked at that, it's like, wow, Paul, that is a tall order. Well, go into chapter, Titus chapter 2 with me, and here's what Titus needed to do to pull this off. Verse 1 says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach them what it is. For us, 
teach this. You guys, me, all of us, we want to have self-control. Tells you what it is right here. This is our manual for what we need to do. This is where God says, go to my word. That's where you're going to find what you need to know. And as you look at that, as you look at the word, what I love in this little passage of chapter 2 that we're going through is Paul leaves nobody out. He says, here's what happens for older men. Here's what you need to tell the older women. Here's what you need to tell the young women. Here's what you need to tell the young men. Here's what you need to know. And just to make sure we hit everybody, here's what the bondservants need to know. And he walks through, and he talks about the idea of needing to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be doing these different things, sober-minded, dignified, sound in faith, all of these things that these people need to be. And when we get down to the end, He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what it says in verse 12. When we look at this, when we look at all of these pieces and we look what's there, and we come down to the end of this chapter, the way that we're able to be those that are ruled by self-control is by the grace of God. Listen to how this chapter ends in 2, 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul says, all of this comes from the grace of God. He's come, the grace of God has brought you salvation, which is step number one. You need to have, at, you need to have asked Christ to save you and allowed him to come and redeem you through his finished work on the cross and allow the Spirit to dwell in you for any of this to matter. That's step one. From there, the grace of God not only saves us, but it changes us and trains us. Look what it says in verse 12. It says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You want to live a life characterized by self-control? Let the Spirit control your life. Through the grace of God, let the Spirit be the one that controls you. Let him be the one that changed you. Be growing in your faith and your relationship with the Lord, and all of these things will start to fall into place a little bit easier. Will we always struggle with sin? Absolutely. We still have flesh. But man, you want to have self-control? You have to start by allowing the grace of God to work in your life. And as we do that, as we think about this idea of self-control, I look at the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, and 
as I've, as I've thought back on the different things that I've learned over the course of this study, as we continue to pour out all of those pieces to other people, to those that we come in contact with, it truly does start with self-control. If I allow my fleshly desires to control me, I can't love like God loves. I can't have joy that God has. I can't feel his peace the way that I need to. And I can go on and on through all the rest of them. But if I'm allowing my flesh to control me, none of that's going to matter. So as we close this evening, hopefully we're reminded that self-control is not only belongs in this list, but it's a very important fruit that's given to us by the Spirit. And as we cultivate this fruit, it becomes easier for us to cultivate the other fruits that we've been given. As we look through Titus, we, we realize that we need the grace of God in our life for this to happen, but we also need to be studying his word. And as we study his word, we need to be sharing that with other people. He told Titus, your job is to share. You're supposed to tell other people what they need to hear. And for us, they need to hear about Christ. They need to hear about their need for him. Because for us to live a life where our desires are controlled by the Spirit, Spirit has to be dwelling in us to produce it. Step one, accept that free gift that the Lord's given us, that his son paid the ultimate price for, that he suffered for. Start there. If you haven't done that, there's no better time than now. But for those of us that are believers, I think it's the question we have to ask us is, are we allowing this through the Spirit to grow in our lives, including self-control? Are we living a life of self-control that allows us to continue to focus on the Lord as opposed to ourselves? For us, living a life of self-control means we're allowing the Lord to show us what it means to be self-controlled and put away our sinful desires to a better align with him. Allows us to channel the other fruit given by the Spirit into our interaction with others. And as we do this, our relationship with God grows and we'll continue to be more like him. And as we do this, our self-control will continue to grow in our hearts and we'll be able to more easily show the love of Christ to those we meet, which will also make it easier to share Christ with those who need to hear. My as it has been most of the time that we've done this study as we wrap it up is don't wait to allow the Spirit to cultivate self-control and the other fruit of the Spirit in your hearts. Humble yourselves even today before the Lord and let self-control and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit define the way we live our lives each and every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you. We thank you for who you are, we thank you that you sent your son to be that perfect sacrifice for us. We thank you that you have made it so that we don't have to be in bondage to our sin. You've made it so that we can say no. I pray, Lord, for each one of us that are here and each one that is watching over the internet, Lord, that it would be you and your desires that we are looking to. That we wouldn't be trying to fill our own 
fleshly desires, but we would be fulfilling yours. I just thank you, Lord, for knowing that no matter what the situation that you are there, if I allow you to, your spirit to work in my heart, that it's willing to do that. So I just pray now, Lord, as we go out this week, that it would be a week where we are truly asking the question, are we allowing the spirit to cultivate the fruit that he has for us in our lives? And I just pray, Lord, that we would be able to answer that as yes. And if not, that we would get back to allowing your grace and your love to be what permeates us and that be what we are sharing with others. Thank you now for this time we've been able to have tonight together and for those that were uh, here to be part of it. Just thank you once again, Lord, for who you are and what you continue to do. In your son's name we pray. Amen.